0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Buddy, and welcome to Fruit Loops episode 94. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No! What? That's right! There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media And entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist,
1: allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to Pod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at
2: 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website, plus check it out for different ways you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Beth?
1: Today we're talking about Mark Goudo, the baseline killer. Goudo is a black man who killed nine people beginning in the fall of 2005 through to the summer of 2006. We actually did this uh, case on our very first episode, Mm -hmm. and we had never done a podcast before and had no idea what we were doing <laughs> our format has since changed quite a bit and uh, we're going to be moving some of our old episodes to patreon only soon because quite frankly they're not our best work nope so we thought we'd give this story another look that's right but before we get to it how you doing i'm pretty tired today was rough uh this week was rough this month was rough and you know the year was rough Ooh. so uh
2: Mm-hmm. Just hanging in there. How you doing? Yes, uh thoughts and prayers to all of us. Uh I am yeah, not no joke. Yeah. not <laughs> doing great. The news mm. about the decision about Brianna Taylor um was not surprising, right? Yeah. America kind of knew that was yeah, going to happen. Yeah. But still infuriating and devastating and yeah. um it's just uh, I'm feeling we, uh, yeah, I feel powerless. Yeah. is how I feel. Yeah. Help, uh, helpless and angry and yeah. just trying to push through, um, to be honest with, to get real, real with y'all. Um, I worry about myself, all the women in my life, all the black women in my life, the black and brown women, um, all of our children, like, uh, like literally you could just be asleep in your bed. And it's okay for the police to kill you. That's crazy. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So anyway, now we are going to get into some listener letters on a happy note. Here we go. Well, hello, angels. We really need you today. We need you. you. (laughs) (laughs) What's in the bag, Beth? So, this
1: is from Captain on Patreon. And they said, Thank you both for an incredible podcast with even better commentary. Just wanted you to know that my first name is, in fact, Captain. Ooh, I love it. Yeah, me too. And they said, Excited I found your show. You deserve more attention. And thank you so much, Captain. And hip hop air horns to you. Yes, indeedy. Well-deserved. Yeah, and we got an Instagram message from Takira who said, I am originally from New Jersey, but I currently live in Maryland. Being black in a super white space is stressful. And mm. one of the ways I choose to relieve that stress is to brew up some tea, roll up a joint. Y'all can totally skip that if y'all don't care for the devil's lettuce. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> We're needing more of it these days. And listen to some Fruit Loops. Beth and Wendy, you are both awesome, respectful, intelligent, and simply the shit. Keep up the great work.
2: No, you keep up the great yeah. work. To you're the shit. Yeah. Thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And we got an email from Jennifer, who's also a patron, who said, I've been listening to you all from my Ohio abode before COVID and George Floyd. I'm in a high risk group because of my paralysis, and my mom, who lives with us, is also in her late seventies. Uh, we have been self-quarantining since the end of February. I count on my podcast to keep me going, uh, keep me from going completely apeshit. I decided I yes I feel you uh, <laughs> I decided that I needed to be a better ally to my sisters of color by becoming a patron thank you thank you so much absolutely I am a white gal who's been blessed to have friends of color that I talk about race with I'm glad you are all so frank about it we need to keep open understand our fellow Americans need to support each need and support each other love you all and thank you hip-hop air horns to you yeah thank you <laughs> (laughs) Jennifer absolutely it sounds like I just added some a new white lady to my favorite white lady list (laughs) (laughs) all right uh yeah no she's she is not wrong uh by the way any any white person who's lucky enough to have BIPOC people in your life who are uh find you to be safe enough to talk to about this stuff I think um you should wear that as a badge of honor yeah um because we cannot talk to, about these things in most spaces to everybody mm-hmm. yeah. To everybody. so yeah. um shout out to all of you before we get into our episode we would like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color true crime is difficult to talk and hear about sometimes and race can be as well um lots of things can um yeah but uh both both are all the things are just part of the world that we live in and we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about it Uh, We may not say all the right things all the time, but we are learning all the time and hopefully trying to be our best sexy selves. Amen. Yeah. And uh, we've been getting a lot of criticism
1: lately um, and are being accused of being racist uh, just for talking about racism.
2: Not how it works. Yeah, I wanted
1: to point out that it's not racist to talk about racism and to point out examples of racism. Talking about racism and the way it affects our society is one of the ways we can combat racism. Amen. And becoming aware of instances of racism is key because we, and by we, I mean white people, not not me and Wendy, <laughs> <laughs> me, me and my white brethren. There you go. <laughs> and if you don't know, now you know i'm white and wendy is black anyway uh we white people often aren't even aware of our biases
2: that's right we welcome our listeners to be part of the conversation on facebook or twitter at fruit loops pod or email us at fruit loops pod at gmail so now we're going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back Hello, Fruit Loops Pod Squad. We are hoping to get some sponsors to help keep Fruit Loops going, but we want to make sure that any ads that we have on the show will resonate with our Fruit Loops Pod Squad. Please do us a huge favor and take a short survey. Visit www.podcastlistenersurvey.com. Be sure to let them know Fruit Loops sent you. Muchas gracias. So, we're back. So, Beth, remind me who we're talking
1: about. (laughs) Today, we're talking about Mark Godot, the baseline killer who murdered nine people in the Phoenix area between 2005 and 2006.
2: So, now we're going to get into some stats. (laughs) All right. Mark G um, had nine murders. I only put G because I... Forgot how to spell his name in the script. So. <laughs> Mark Udo had nine murder victims speak their names. Georgia Thompson was 19. Tina Washington was 39. Romelia Vargas was 38. Mirna Palma Roman was 34. Liliana Sanchez Cabrera was 20. George Chow Chu was 23. Kristen Nicole Gibbons was 26, Sofia Nunez was 37, and Carmen Miranda was 37. His crimes took place from August 6, 2005 to June 29, 2006. He was apprehended on September 4th, 2006. He ended up being convicted of 67 felony counts. We'll tell you all the details, including nine murders, attempted murder, sexual assault, child molestation, and kidnapping. And he was sentenced to 1,200 years for the rapes and uh, several death sentences and he is currently on death row. All right. So now we're going to dive into the setting. So let me tell you something. My (laughs) offspring is in the third grade and learning about the first peoples of Arizona. So I use this school book for this section. (laughs) Uh, Spoiler alert. Phoenix is on land previously inhabited entirely by brown folks, specifically by indigenous people. Oh, yes. (laughs) And by 2005 and 6, it was inhabited by mostly white folks. How did that happen? Uh, The history of Phoenix is long and has been severely whitewashed, but here's the Fruit Loops Cliffs Notes. The Hohokam were the first
1: peoples of Arizona. They also carried out extensive trade with the nearby ancient Puebloans, the Mogollon and the Sinawa, as well as with the more distant Mesoamerican civilizations. The Hohokam people occupied the Phoenix area for 2,000 years. That's
2: right. Minding their business. Yeah. Uh, after the departure of the Hohokam, and nobody knows exactly what happened to them. The word Hohokam is said to be Pima for those who have vanished. Groups of the Akmiel O'odham, commonly known as Pima, Tohono O'Odham and Maricopa tribes began to use the area, as well as segments of the Yavapai and Apache. They banded with the Maricopa for protection against incursions by the Yuma and Apache tribes.
1: After the Mexican-American War ended in 1848, Mexico ceded its northern zone to the United States, and the region's residents became U.S. citizens. Phoenix was settled in 1867 as an agricultural community near where the salt and heat Gila rivers met and it was incorporated as a city in 1881
2: although it is located in the northeastern part of the Sonora desert and has a hot desert climate I'll say uh, I was one away <laughs> today it's extensive canal system led to a thriving agricultural community uh the canal system was utilized by the Hohokam and um I believe they they started it Right. Yes. And hundreds yes. and hundreds of years after the Hohokam vanished, European settlers started ex- excavating the eight. Ancient waterways. They noticed. Thank you for shortening this because I almost didn't put this part in. Uh, I think it's really fascinating. It is really interesting. Yeah, I just, uh, uh, but it was it was really long. Anyway, thank you. Cumbersome. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, today, the Phoenix metro area has more than 180 miles of canals and more mi- miles of waterways than Venice and Amsterdam combined. I don't think people know that. But yeah, we. That's um, crazy. Yeah, I mean, I used to run. Now I just walk on my 36 year old knees. Uh, uh, never forgave me for it but um they uh it's it's a lot of people take advantage of the canal and walk and fish yes. and run and um along walk the, the dogs canals. along yeah. the canals it's really cool yeah it is In
1: 1863, the mining town of Wickenburg, northwest of Phoenix, was the first to be established in Maricopa County. And uh, spoiler alert, there are lots of mining towns in Arizona. These were the western boom and bust towns back in the day. Mm -hmm. The Army created Fort McDowell on the Verde River in 1865 to forestall Indian uprisings. And uprisings or trying to get their stolen land back. uh, Tomato, tomato.
2: Yeah. Whatever your history book wants to call it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Again, very whitewash. Uh the fort yes. established a camp on the south side of the Salt River in 1866, which was the first settlement in the valley after the decline of the Hohokam. Other nearby settlements later merged to become the city of Tempe. And on February 14th, 1912. Valentine's Day. Yeah, look at that. Phoenix became the state capital as Arizona was admitted to the union as the 48th state under President William Howard Taft. I only thought that this was really, really interesting because we're in an election year. There's this Supreme Court stuff and people are talking about court packing and adding states. And yeah. People used to do it all the time. So, back in the day, what's the big deal?
1: Anyway, (laughs) Phoenix is a quintessential Western city sprawling across the valley with wide roads and big skies. Maricopa County, where Phoenix is located, encompasses 14 cities. 10 towns, 15 unincorporated communities, and four Native American communities. Each city or town in the valley tends to blend straight into the next.
2: True. Phoenix was a planned city built on a grid as opposed to a lot of eastern cities that just kind of grew haphazardly. And most of the major streets are a mile apart. The streets for the most part run east and west and north and south. Baseline Road, which is we'll call it a character in the story, uh, is located in South Phoenix and runs east to west, stretching all the way out to Apache Junction, which is on the far east side of the valley.
1: In architecture, it's similar to other southwestern towns with Spanish and Pueblo influences like Albuquerque and Los Angeles. There's lots of stucco and red tile roofs. But Phoenix has been pretty whitewashed in that it's fairly bland. Mm -hmm. With so much Native American history, you'd think you'd see a lot more evidence of it, but much of the Phoenix area or the Valley of the Sun is just suburban neighborhoods and strip malls.
2: Again, a place entirely inhabited by brown Indigenous people, and now... Not so much. White. White, white, white. White. Yes. Very, lots of lots of whites. But yes. you can look for Native American history if you want to. That's true. Uh, there's the Heard Museum in Uptown Phoenix, which is a museum dedicated to Native American art. And the Pueblo Grande Museum, a pre-Columbian site that was inhabited by the Hohokam people, smack dab in the middle of Phoenix at Washington and 44th Street. There's also the Hohokam
1: Heritage Center in Chandler, a museum for the Gila River Indian community community And outside of the Phoenix area is the Casa Grande Ruins, Montezuma Castle, Tutsigut National Monument, among other sites. But you really need to seek these things out. The modern face of Phoenix, as we said, is very, very white.
2: Mm, so much snow, except it's in the desert and it's the people. <laughs> uh, South Phoenix... <laughs> south phoenix where baseline road runs through is known as the bad part of town and i think only white people say that um (laughs) i i live in south phoenix and look i'm i'm not scared of you i'm from the south side and i tell that to my kids and they are hard as hell um but uh it's the quote unquote bad part of town whatever but that people just say that because there's um more poverty and more black and right. brown people here. Um, but there are actually pockets of poverty all over this entire city. In yeah. fact, some of the baseline killers t- uh, crimes took place in a square mile between 32nd street and 24th street and Indian school and in Thomas road, an area about seven miles North of baseline road. It's a poorer area, but just a mile or so North of that is Camelback. And that is a very fancy upscale, whitely white area uh, called the Biltmore Fashion Park and the Arizona Biltmore Resort and the Wrigley Mansion, which are super duper posh. Like, my black yeah. ass does not like going there. When <laughs> people say, yeah, let's so, meet at the Biltmore, I'm like, let's not. No, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Unless somebody uh, else is paying.
1: <laughs> I, I can't stand the Biltmore Fashion Ugh, Park. I Ugh, hate gross. going there. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, it's interesting because there are pockets of of poverty all over the city. Mm -hmm. So you can drive from one area that's uh, really posh right into another area that's that's uh, there's a lot of poverty. Mm -hmm. So anyway, in uh, Phoenix in 2006 was the sixth largest city in America and it was growing fast. Currently, it's the fifth largest city in the U.S. According to the census in 2010, Maricopa County, which is named after the Maricopa people, was comprised of 73% white people, 5% black people, 2% Native American, and the rest of other races, including two or more races. And uh, 29% were of Latinx origin.
2: So um, it's just, I'm just looking at that 73%. And again, it started out (laughs) the complete opposite. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Um, let's see how long we can keep this charade going. In, uh, in 2006, Mike D'Antoni was the coach of the Phoenix Suns. Remember those days? Uh, that summer was very hot and terrifying because there were actually two active serial case- cases going on in Phoenix at the same time. The Valley of the Sun was the Valley of the Sugath. And Beth was here for all of it. Right, Beth? Yep, I was. So now we're yeah. going to get into Mark Goudot, the baseline killer's early life. Hit it, Beth. So Mark Udo
1: was born September 6, 1964, and he was the 12th of 13 children. His mother was a maid, and his father was a lot attendant for car dealers and a bit of a philanderer. Mm. Mark's father was also a strict disciplinarian, and drug use and alcoholism ran in the family. Some siblings grew up to be upstanding citizens, and others have been convicted of different crimes.
2: Mark's parents split up, and then his mother died when he was just 12 years old. He lived with his sister for a while and attended high school at Corona del Sun in... or. Corona del Sol, excuse me, in Tempe, uh, where he excelled in sports and played football. But eventually he left school and reportedly turned to alcohol and cocaine and he never graduated. At 18, he was accused
1: of rape, but was never charged. In 1982, a female high school student made the allegation that Mark and his older brother, Michael, had raped her repeatedly at their home. The police report notes that the young woman, quote, would not cooperate, unquote, for a possible prosecution and soon left the Phoenix area. And when they say she would not cooperate, I think what they meant was she didn't want to deal with their bullshit,
2: (laughs) Yeah, no. Um, the the uh, I guess the way we handle sexual assaults has evolved and gotten a little bit better, but in 1982, you can bet your bottom dollar it was complete garbage. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, it's not. That's right. I guess. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire.
0: Huh. Ah. Oh.
2: your whole vagina is on trial your vagina's history is on trial what your vagina was wearing is on trial like (laughs) all the things that don't shouldn't matter are yeah on trial it's ridiculous whoa how unprofessional I should have put my phone on do not disturb uh then had a couple of minor arrests while uh, like trespassing and driving while intoxicated but nothing major Uh, when he was 24 Gudeau met a woman named Wendy Carr Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you hear those um, church bells at a Phoenix (laughs) nightclub? They began a serious relationship and moved in together. Serious. Godot and Carr shared an apartment on 28th Street in Osborne in the summer of 1989. Now we're going to dive into the timeline. Take us there, Beth. On
1: August 6, 1989, Phoenix police responded to calls of a man beating a woman with the butt of a shotgun in the parking lot of the apartment complex where
2: Mark and Wendy lived. Officers found the semi-conscious woman named Darlene bleeding from her head and naked from the waist down. Two witnesses said the assailant had chased them while brandishing the shotgun and a revolver before fleeing. That's a lot of weapons. Yeah,
1: yeah. Darlene had a skull fracture, deep lacerations, and bruises all over her body. She actually wasn't even able to give a statement for three days Mm. because she was hospitalized. But when she was able to, she gave police a complete account of what happened, accusing Mark Godot by name. Mm. She was even
2: able to give them his address. Mm. Shout out to Darlene. After the police arrested Gudo, he gave numerous bullshit accounts of what happened, including at first how he and he and the woman had consensual sex and were about to take a bath when the unknown two men, one of them armed with an Uzi, a (laughs) submachine gun, entered the apartment and beat her up before leaving. (laughs) Yeah, that happens
1: all the time. I mm. hate when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs>
2: it, it just reminds me, there's this skit on SNL, and um, Ke- Keenan is, uh, like, pretending to, he's trying to do the scared straight, but all he's doing is delivering plots from scary movies to the kids <laughs> to try to get them scared straight. That's what right. this reminds me of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the police report is
1: a quote from Gudo where he says that he, quote, tries to avoid women like her, unquote. (laughs) And at trial, Darlene said that she, quote, felt like she was in the room with the devil. Mm. And uh, she was.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark's girlfriend, Wendy Carr, wrote a letter to the judge. Uh, Now, this is coming from a white lady, so it carries a lot of weight. Did we say that Wendy Carr was a white lady? Because she is. No, we didn't.
1: Yeah, she did. She Um, is.
2: And welcome to Culture Corner. Um, There is, I don't know if it's, this might be taboo to say out loud, um, but Mark Udo was a black man, Wendy Carr was a white woman, and there is some conversation in the black zeitgeist about. Um, a, a white woman being a prize For a white ma- a black man As if he might be Elevating himself um, By being with her um, mm-hmm. I only bring that up This is not my perspective This is just something that people Many people are saying Um <laughs> So I just wanted to bring that up there. She's white. He's black anyway. um, So there you go. But she wrote a letter to the judge saying no one can ever convince me that Mark is capable of assaulting anyone. I am confident when I say that Mark has never done drugs of any fashion. He is of high morals and sound mind. And if the true assailant is not incarcerated, I'm sure he'll do this again. He's probably done it before. Also, I should also remind people. I am married to an old whitey. I have nothing against interracial relationships. Yeah, I just yeah. say that as a fact of the story and what um, people I say. what people say. Okay,
1: yeah. Don't kill
2: me. Don't get at me.
1: <laughs> no, it's. I don't think it's uh, bad to point out what uh, people say in in culture and society. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Beth. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Goudeau was convicted of aggravated assault, but was out on bond prior to sentencing. And on August 10th, 1990, just weeks before his sentencing, Mark Goudeau robbed a
2: Fry's supermarket. Well, here's what he did. He held up two female store clerks with a silver handgun not unlike the weapon described much later by his victim. He pointed out the gun at the head of one of the women and told them to come with him if you know what's good for you.
1: The women did as they were told, leaving the store briefly with him. He also took about $500 in a brown paper bag. Goudot took off in his car, leaving the women behind, but passerby alerted police to the make, model, and license plate of the vehicle, and investigators tracked him down and arrested him.
2: Mm, Goodness. Uh, Goudot denied everything even though police found the paper, the brown paper bag with the fries money in it in his apartment <laughs> i didn't do it he is not a good liar or story no. fabricator <laughs> And remember, Goudot was still facing sentencing for the assault of Darlene. In a plea bargain deal, Goudot had admitted to three counts of aggravated assault. So for that and being and for having robbed a store, he was sentenced to 21 years. Shortly before his January
1: 1991 sentencing on the Fry's robbery, Goudot told the pre-sentencing officer that he had smoked crack cocaine before the robbery and that the next thing he knew, he was at the store with a gun. Mm. (laughs) Crack is a hell of a drug. (laughs) And he uh, claimed that the the gun was not real.
2: Hmm. He also
1: claimed that he was tired of lying and that he realized that he had a drug problem and needed help. But remember, according to Wendy Carr,
2: he never, he never did, did, drugs. did drugs. okay? Never.
1: Right. Never done drugs of any fashion. And he's of high morals and sound mind.
2: Mm. And a sound mind. Mm. <laughs> uh, he began serving his sentence in 1991 when he stood by his side. Stand by your man. And that same year, the two were married in prison. Sounds romantic. Goudot continued to blame drugs and alcohol for his legal troubles.
1: Goudot was up for parole in 2004. He had the support of Wendy, his friends, and relatives who vouched for him to the parole board. Goudot said he was out of control due to drug and alcohol abuse, but that he never wanted to hurt
2: a soul. He was doing drugs, (laughs) (laughs) but he never meant to hurt a soul. In August of 2004, just (laughs) after 13 years, Goudot was released on parole. He was 39 at the time. He found a job as a construction worker where he often worked 10-hour days. During his first month on the job, he was awarded Employee of the Month. He was known as a friendly neighbor and loving husband.
1: In May of 2005, a series of random drive-by shootings began across the valley. The serial shooter attacked at night and early in the morning using a rifle or a shotgun and preyed on individuals who were walking alone or waiting at deserted bus stops. Animals were killed as well, most notably horses and dogs.
2: Just, ugh. Those guys yeah. are d- disgusting. But um, yeah. then in August of 20, uh, 2025, a string of sexual assault- assaults started along Baseline Road, but they were not immediately connected. On August 6th, 2005, in South Phoenix, three girls were walking home from a pool party when a man forced them behind a church. They were held at gunpoint as the man molested two of the girls. On September 8th, 2005, Georgia Thompson was
1: shot to death in an apartment complex parking lot in Tempe, a little over over a mile from baseline road she had just exited her car after an evening out that included dinner with her boyfriend and his parents she was found with a bullet in her head and her keys still clutched in her hand
2: her pants were unbuttoned she but she had not been sexually assaulted and this seems to be a signature of gudods um, the only evidence found at the scene was a spent .380 caliber cartridge, cartridge casing. While investigating, a Tempe detective had tracked down the location of a cell tower where Thompson's missing phone had pinged an hour after the murder. The tower was in central Phoenix, about 200 yards from Mark Guido's home. On September 20th,
1: 2005, two sisters were walking near a park in South Phoenix when they were accosted and sexually assaulted. The two sisters one visibly pregnant were forced to strip their attacker pointed a gun at the pregnant sister's belly Mm. molested her then raped her sister he forced the older girl the one who was pregnant and she was six months pregnant to spit into his hand and he wiped it on an area of her breast then rubbed dirt into it, presumably in an attempt to get rid of his own DNA.
2: Now I know DNA. It is my favorite character in every story, and that is not (laughs) how she works. Uh, (laughs) On September 28th, 2005, at about 9.30 p.m., a mother and her teenage daughter were abducted in the car outside of a Mexican restaurant, then driven to a secluded area nearby. The mother was sexually assaulted in front of her daughter, then forced to drive while the daughter was molested by Goudot. On November 3rd, 2005,
1: about 8 p.m. a man in a dreadlock wig and wearing a fisherman's hat robbed a lingerie boutique at gunpoint immediately afterward he forced a young woman at gunpoint to drive him out of the area she was dropping off clothes into a donation bin when he grabbed her the woman went along with his sexual
2: demands and she lived a composite sketch was made depicting a round-faced black man with a thin mustache, locks. We don't say dreadlocks anymore because it's racist. Um, oh, really? With, mm-hmm. Because it implies that the hair on your natural head is dreadful. And it's a word that uh, Europeans I used. I had no idea. hmm To mock um, the way that um, black people styled their natural hair and We try not to use it anymore. This has been Culture Corner with (laughs) Wendy and Beth. Did not know that. Yeah. um, So I try not to use it. But, you know, you slip up every now and then. You know, you just do better next time. Uh, And a floppy hat. The image appeared all over the media and on billboards around Phoenix. On November 7th,
1: 2005, at about 8 p.m., four people were robbed at gunpoint inside Las Brazas, a Mexican restaurant located at 32nd Street and Thomas. The robber then went next door to a Little Caesars pizza restaurant and robbed three people inside. Immediately afterward, he robbed four people outside on the street. He reportedly stole four hundred and sixty three dollars and fired a round into the air as he fled. This this is a crazy crime. This is
2: some spree. You know, what's coming back is um, that uh, a shop till you drop show are is like there a shopper sweepstakes yeah where people are in grocery stores and try to sh- like try shop, to shop, shop as, as the, much as they can this is, yeah this get is, the is most. like yeah the robbery sweepstakes <laughs> where, where you're like going through drop with your till shop you drop. Drop till you drop that's what this <laughs> feels like it's so um crazy intense yeah. and out of the like There's cameras and confetti. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But except there's not. Uh, Goudot was dubbed the baseline rapist after Phoenix police realized that a man was sexually assaulting females as young as 12 years old at gunpoint near Baseline Road. But he evolved into being the baseline killer in the spring of 2006 after investigators began to link the series of murders and armed robberies to the rapist.
1: On December 12th, 2005, Tina Washington left work at a daycare center in South Phoenix and walked across the street to take the bus home. She was dragged into an alley behind a gas station and sandwich shop. She was shot in the head, and she also had a defensive gunshot wound to her hand. Her bra was visible, and her pants were pulled down a bit.
2: I just got to say that um, the manner in which he left some of these women's bodies is um, humiliating and super disrespectful Um, to have your your body exposed, your Pants undone, it's just um, speaks to the yeah, kick.
1: meant to. I think it's maybe meant to humiliate them,
2: yeah. It just seems really messed up, and uh, I don't know what Wendy is thinking about calling yeah. her husband this upstanding citizen when he is clearly yeah. the opposite, um, so. Uh, the woman Miss Washington didn't have a purse or any identification but a shopping bag with a holiday motif was near the body. Police learned later that the victim had received the bag at a secret Santa party across the street at a preschool where she worked. And I'm just thinking of how sad the kids in that class must have been when they found the news. Tina owned a uh, a distinctive mother's ring that her children bought for her, and it was missing.
1: A man named Pete Ochoa was working at his catering business inside one of the buildings when he heard two bangs. He opened the door and looked out. He thought the noise was coming from some neighborhood kids playing football, which had happened before. He was going out to tell them to leave, but he instead saw a man in a hooded sweatshirt standing over a woman's motionless body.
2: The man stood up pointed a handgun at Ochoa and fired once from a distance of about 10 feet, but the gun jammed. Ochoa went back into the warehouse and closed and latched the door. He said that a moment or two later, he saw the door handle turn, that the man was trying to get inside, but the lock held, thank goodness. Ochoa said he wished he could be more of help in identifying the assailant. Tina Washington's sister claimed that Tina had told her
1: that she had been harassed on the bus by a man the day before. She believed that the man was her sister's murderer. And it wasn't until months later that ballistics eventually linked the murder of Georgia Thompson with Tina Washington and the other murders and robberies in Phoenix.
2: In the early morning hours of February 20th, 2006, Romelia Vargas and Myrna Palma Roman were working in a food catering truck in southwest Phoenix when they were attacked. Romelia and Myrna were found in their truck with gunshot wounds to their heads. Their pants were unbuttoned and pulled down slightly. At first, police thought it was a drug deal gone bad. Of course they would because it's two brown women in a truck. Uh, in the neighborhood. But anyway, uh, the drug guilt gone bad, but they were later ballistically linked to the other crimes. On
1: March 14th, 2006, at about 9 p.m., Chow George Cho, 23, offered his co-worker Liliana Sanchez Cabrera, 20, a ride home after their shift at a restaurant but they were abducted in the
2: parking lot as they were leaving. George's body was found in an alley off 32nd Street, and Liliana was found dead in the car a few blocks west of 24th Street. It was at this point the police realized that this was the work of a serial killer. On April 4th,
1: 2006, a body was found hidden beneath a pile of plywood between a pool service office and a storage unit. She was later identified as Kristen Nicole Gibbons, 26, a sex worker. The owner of the pool service had noticed blood and drag marks in the gravel outside of his office on March
2: 29th and had called police. The police did not find anything. Instead, the owner's dog found the body a week later. Kristen had been shot in the head and ballistics later linked her murder to the other baseline murders. Kristen was probably murdered on March 28th or 29th. On April 10th, 2006, Sofia Nunez, 37,
1: was found dead in her bathtub by her 8 year son. Son. That's Mm. really sad. Mm -hmm. She was submerged in the water. Her shirt was pulled up and her pants unbuttoned. She had been shot in the head. Gudo and Nunez had a casual relationship and she had the suspicion that he might be married.
2: Um, I think he also tried to tell her that he was a professional athlete. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: remember that. Yes, like a pro football player or something.
2: Yeah, she didn't believe him, but. Her murder wasn't immediately connected because the M.O. was very different from the other murders. First, she was killed in her home, whereas the other murder victims had been abducted off the streets or killed in their cars. And it was also outside of the area where he usually operated. She lived in West Phoenix and most of the other crimes were clustered around Central Phoenix.
1: Police found her phone number in Gudeau's cell phone records. He had called her more than 300 times between March and October 2005. Later, the bullet from Nunez's body was analyzed and it matched the other baseline killer's victims. And DNA from the crime scene was later matched to Gudeau's.
2: On uh, May 1st, 2006, around 9 p.m., a man wearing a beige latex human-like mask carjacked a woman. The woman had just left a check cashing place in the strip mall where months earlier, Goudot had committed the back-to-back armed robberies at the Mexican restaurant and pizza joint.
1: That would be terrifying. Yeah. Some guy comes up to you in a latex mask.
2: Oh my God, yeah.
1: Yeah. The man was posing as an unhoused person pushing a shopping cart. He forced the woman at gunpoint to drive a few miles north to a residential area. He told her that he had just robbed the Fry's store and it was the same Fry's store that he had actually Actually robbed years earlier, but uh, it was a lie this time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't,
1: I don't understand the lie either.
2: <laughs> his that's I think that's one of my takeaways that I don't, I don't need to talk about later because his stories and lies are just so off the wall. Don't yeah. make any sense ever. Um, Then he made her disrobe, still seated in the car. He asked her to touch herself. At that point, she realized that it was going to be a rape. He said, suck my dick and he was going to kill her if she didn't and she said go ahead and kill me that's pretty gangster yeah it is yeah she's she gets all the hip hop air horns
1: <laughs> he told her that he was going to blow her brains out in the car and that her parents were going to read about it in the newspaper the next day that's cold blooded mhm he then pulled the trigger and there was a loud clink noise when she realized that she wasn't dead she got out of the car and ran yeah she's the hero <laughs>
2: That's that's what that deserves. Yeah, um, on May fifth. 2006, Phoenix police went public with a list of 18 crimes that they believed were the work of the baseline killer. And in June of 2006, they had confirmation that those crimes were linked.
1: Phoenix PD is part of a nationwide network with access to data about shell casings recovered at crime scenes and elsewhere. The network called NIBIN, the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, enables ballistics experts to compare spent casings by computer and to possibly link crime scenes.
2: Which is what happened in early June of 2006 when it was discovered that the shell casings from the Washington murder matched those found at the scene of Georgia Thompson's September 2005 death in Tempe. That told police that the suspect had killed at least once before Tina Washington. On
1: June 29, 2006, at 9.30 p.m., Carmen Miranda, 37, mother of two, was abducted from a self-serve car wash just blocks from where Gudo lived. He approached Carmen as she was about to vacuum her car. Carmen and her boyfriend were talking on their cell phones, and the boyfriend heard her scream over the phone. Goudot overpowered her, took the wheel of her car, and parked a few hundred yards away behind a barber shop.
2: There, he shot her once in the forehead, leaving her body sprawled in the back seat. Though police arrived in minutes, she was dead and was nowhere. And he was nowhere to be seen. She was Goudot's last known victim. A security camera at the location captured the carjacking on video, but the tape recording was really grainy and degraded, um, for the killer to be made out.
1: And uh, we watched that video, and although you can't you can't really tell who it is, mm-hmm. um, my takeaway was um, that it just happened really, really fast. It was a like, flash,
2: a flash yeah. of lightning, boom, got faster
1: it. than than you can imagine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah as we mentioned earlier in 2005 and 2006 there was another serial killer active at the same time as the baseline killer actually there were two uh though they didn't know it at the time it was two friends who would go out and drive around the valley shooting random people and animals like you do
2: Mm-hmm. as one <laughs> does uh yeah yeah, those guys were nuts. Uh, these two were referred to as, uh, at first, as the serial shooter until the case was cracked and it was realized that there were two wackos, uh, at which time the moniker was pluralized to the serial shooters. There did not appear to be a sexual-based motive. The baseline killer, on the other hand, was known to be use a semi-automatic gun and was active at night, but also during the day. He also committed robberies and had a sexual-based motive. The M.O.s and
1: signatures were different. An M.O. is what the killer does in order to commit the crime, like the type of gun he uses, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. A signature is what he needs to do to get something out of it, to get his rocks off, so to speak. Mm. And uh, police determined that these were two... Three actually different mm-hmm. killers, while most of the general public was probably unaware of the difference, and uh, a lot of people thought it was one serial killer
2: doing the uh, doing all of the all of doing it all of it. Yeah, mm. that would have been something though if it was. It was something. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, whew. So uh, now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Uh, Police released composite sketches of the baseline killer. Goudot's parole officer recognized him in the sketch and called the Phoenix Police Silent Witness Hotline, referring to Mark Goudot, suggesting that his client resembled one of the composite sketches of the suspect. It was the first time Goudot's name had come up in the investigation. On July 21st,
1: 2006, a Phoenix detective and Goudot's parole officer knocked on his door. Later, the detective described a pleasant chat with the ex con, who volunteered to provide any requested DNA or fingerprint samples, probably because he, he thought he covered his tracks. Right. <laughs> and Goudot says that he cooperated fully when he was questioned by police, that he
2: had nothing to hide. Interesting. The parole officer looked around for uh, the Gudo residence a little during the half hour interview, but didn't notice anything unusual in plain view. By that point in the investigation, hundreds of African-American men resembling the sketch had been added to the growing list of potential suspects. Goudot was an ex-convict on parole who lived near several of the crime scenes. He says he wasn't surprised when he was contacted by the police.
1: Nine of the 23 baseline killer attacks occurred within three miles of the Phoenix home Goudot and his wife shared one of the victims, 37-year-old Carmen Miranda, was killed just around the corner from their residence. And um, I remember when that murder happened uh, because I worked right down the street Mm -hmm. from where the baseline killer lived. Mm -hmm. And uh, there seemed at the time to be a cluster of crimes occurring within a square mile block. So, At the time, I was pretty sure that he lived around there Mm. because I had read that serial killers will start out further away from their residence, uh, but then will start operating closer and closer to where they live, like they get lazy or comfortable or something like that.
2: Oh, gee, a true crime knew something was up. (laughs) She was sniffing. Sniffing it out. (laughs) On the case. Uh, Yeah,
1: it was was a little freaky because, you know, I had to... um, I had to go to work. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, This was... Uh, no doubt, a very scary time to be in Phoenix because um, you never you never knew things were happening at night. Things were happening during the day. Um, yeah, and they were happening when you're walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Somebody might drive by and shoot you. Yeah.
1: Um, and it or- didn't,
2: it was it was happening to dogs and horses, people, yeah. people of different races, men and women. It was like nobody was safe. Nobody was safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the Goudot's home was searched, but nothing incriminating was discovered. Still, because of his criminal past in the proximity of his home to the baseline killer's crimes, he was placed under surveillance. For the next several
1: weeks, police monitored his every move, following him to work, his weekly appointments with his parole officer, and on errands with his wife. During that time, no criminal behavior was reported. So task force supervisors decided to call off the surveillance of Goudot. But they didn't forget him.
2: Mm, but he was, he He knew they were watching him, right? So yeah, yeah. he was on his best. He wasn't
1: going to do anything. <laughs>
2: yeah, his best is behavioral. Um, one month later in August, Phoenix police made the decision to gather evidence from the numerous crimes collected throughout the investigation and send it to the Department of Public Safety's forensic lab for DNA testing. Finally. And finally. <laughs> finally, it's DNA <laughs> testing. <laughs> Among that evidence were two swabs taken from one of the first sexual assaults attributed to the baseline killer, the sexual assault of the two sisters. On September 6, 2006, DNA
1: linked Goudot to the sexual assault of the two sisters in September of 2005, one year earlier. Goudot was then arrested within days after an analyst at the state crime lab linked his DNA to swabs collected from the breasts of one of the assaulted sisters, the one that he tried to mask with his own saliva and dirt.
2: My genius didn't work. Uh, (laughs) But uh, technology is now able to separate male DNA from female DNA using something called STR DNA. Goudot's genetic profile had already been in a national databank since 2004 after he provided a DNA swab upon his release from prison after serving 13 years for his earlier crimes.
1: Now, just imagine, just imagine mm-hmm. if they had tested that DNA. <laughs> in a world. Back in yeah. uh, September of
2: 2005. Mm-hmm. Just imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Detectives collected some evidence during their search of Gudo's home after his arrest for sexual assault. Apparently, Gudo had a lot of shoes. Mm -hmm. So detectives focused on just the black and white footwear because that's what was described by his victims. Among the items
2: seized were a pair of white Nike sneakers. See, this is where the uh, detectives' cultural competence, their lack of it shows. Because everybody knows that, like... Dudes love sneakers. Dudes tend mm-hmm. to be sneaker heads, so the fact that he had a lot is not weird. It's just weird for old white guys. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, <laughs> uh, so they missed the mark. Uh, forensic testing between September and October revealed that DNA from two of Gudo's murder victims had remained on one of his sneakers, despite apparent attempts to wash away possible evidence. Analysts found a tiny bit of
1: blood from the only male murder victim, George Chu, on the stitching around the Nike swoosh. The other DNA on that sneaker, besides Gudeau's, belonged to Nicole Gibbons, murdered in late March 2006, about two weeks after Chu. Police also recovered a black ski mask from the bottom of a hamper, and testing revealed the microscopic presence of Gibbon's blood in five locations on it.
0: Something is creeping, don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.
2: Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can
0: find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.
2: Investigators were now convinced that Goudot was the baseline killer, but prosecutors were not in a rush to seek a grand jury indictment for the nine murders and other charges because he was already locked up for the rape case of the two sisters. So they can take their time. Mm -hmm.
1: In October of 2006, while Goudot was already in custody for for the sexual assault, police searched his home again, looking for more evidence. The lead detective on the baseline killer task force was apparently not happy when he learned that his fellow detectives hadn't taken all of Goudot's shoes during the first search. Um, and as you might recall, they focused on black and white shoes only because of the earlier interviews with some of the assault and robbery victims and their descriptions of his footwear. Th-
2: this probably is not what it looked like, but do you know who Jesus and Miro are? No, Th- they're, um, Two guys who started out as podcasters And got a show on Showtime And uh, they um, Just talk about the culture and talk about news And they're really really funny But now that they're um, doing their Showtime show from Home uh, one of them has this background that is just all sneakers. It's it. <laughs> this is what I'm picturing Goudot's sneakers, like a sneaker wall, um, sneakers everywhere, yeah, with colorful sneakers. Um, <laughs> it probably wasn't like that, but anyway, uh, the evidence discovered on the Nike shoes and the ski cap led police to get another search warrant from a judge and make a second search of Goudot's home. This time, all of Goudot's shoes were collected. While collecting the shoes, a detective picked up a pair of Brown leather shoes and a small Ziploc sandwich bag containing something metallic slipped from inside the toe of the shoe to the heel.
1: The detective looked in the bag and saw that it contained a multicolored ring, a bracelet, and a few other trinkets. The detective knew that family members of Tina Washington had reported that her mother's ring and bracelet never turned up after her December 2005 murder. Washington had bought the mother's ring from a Walmart a few months before she died, a special order that included the engraving of the names of her three grown sons. Oh, man.
2: Yeah. Disguises including the infamous lock wig and the fisherman's hat witnesses had described were never discovered the murder weapon a 380 caliber pistol has also never been found uh so now we're going to dive into the trial hit it beth yeah it's not going to be a very
1: long section Gudo <laughs> <laughs> was found guilty of all but three armed robberies one attempted robbery and one count of kidnapping the jury was hung on one count of sexual abuse
2: Goudot was handed nine death sentences, plus over 1100 years in prison. Goudot has been linked to 23 separate crimes, 74 criminal charges in all, including 15 sexual assaults, 11 kidnappings and nine murders. Goudot has filed many appeals, but so far to no avail. So now we're going to get into where are they now? What do you got, Beth? Goudo is locked up in the Arizona State Prison Complex
1: in Florence, Arizona. He still pleads his innocence, saying that the police planted evidence because they didn't find anything until the third search of his home. He also still misunderstands how DNA works, telling a British documentary crew, quote, well, they got your DNA. It must be you.
2: Yeah. wonderful wife, Wendy, also still claims her husband is innocent. She alleges that uh, Phoenix needed to do some damage control. And Phoenix police planted all of the evidence to frame her husband and grab the glory of solving one of Arizona's biggest criminal cases. And based on our research that we recently did to an exhaustive degree on the Atlanta child murders, I think it's a valid point as Phoenix was, you know, all about growth at the time. But, um, you know, and it was just before the housing bubble, but this ain't it, Wendy. She is dead wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So now we're going (laughs) to. They got him. Yeah, they got him. (laughs) Now we're going to get into what we think made Gudo snap as well as our takeaways. So I think his childhood contributed to. Um, yeah, the adult uh, that he agreed. Yeah, it was a very unstable childhood. 13 kids is too much. <laughs> yeah. uh, plus the substance abuse, uh, the strict discipline of his father. And I've also brought this up before that black parent for black parents. It's not necessarily unusual to be a strict disciplinarian, especially when you're trying to keep your child safe in a white world. Um, but the loss of his mother and the crime that rape at an early age that he um, was accused of yeah, is just beyond. Um, when we spoke to Jensen and Holes about this case, they brought up a really good point that um, Mark Udo's psychological growth may have been stunted when he got locked up. But he clearly wasn't reformed while he was in prison and earned a Ph.D. in criminality. (laughs) Uh, His crimes of robbery, sexual assault escalated to murder. And I got the sense that the murders were like a consequence of his victims not doing what he wanted them to do. Yeah. Right. And most serial killers with a sexual element to it strangle or stab. And he didn't do that. Goudot would talk to his victims first um, to try to, like, gauge them and then right. would try to sexually assault them. And then if he didn't get his way, then he would shoot them. So, yeah. Um, but a, dis- uh, a disgusting individual who deserves yes. to be locked up under the jail.
1: Agreed. <laughs> um, and yeah, he was in jail for most of his adult life and a lot of times because of our prison system. Imprisoning people just makes them better criminals. <laughs> mm mm-hmm, Mm mm-hmm and i too got the feeling that the that raping the women is what he was interested in or or being in control mm-hmm. and if they refused to comply he'd just get pissed and and just kill them like mm-hmm. he wasn't even interested anymore like you're done mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it's interesting like we discussed how he would leave the bodies with their pants pulled down slightly. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not really sure what that's all about. Maybe to humiliate them um, because they refuse to have sex with him. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. Yeah. Um, In any case, uh, this guy had like no impulse control. He was just doing whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if maybe there was some sexual abuse in his childhood. Mm. Um, the crimes with the two sisters and the mother and the daughter were so awful and strange with the familial relationships. It yeah. just there was like a, a some sort of incest. Um, angle there yeah I don't don't know yeah I
2: I mean we didn't see anything in our research but that's an interesting thing that you um observed and I'm right there with you there maybe there was something there could have been yeah So that's it for Goudot. Now, now we're going to talk about how not to get murdered. (laughs) So, if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips.
2: Generic. Eric indeed head on a swivel y'all some of his victims had no choice due to their work and transportation uh, situation to walk um or move about um, on foot as pedestrians, late at night, early in the morning. Um, and so if you can, arm yourself with a safety app on your phone. If you get into trouble, um, we've shouted out several, but just Google safety app, um, and you can scroll through one that works best for you. There's all kinds of yeah. Different look options. at the reviews. Yeah. Um. Also, learn some self defense moves. Go to the YouTubes and uh, look for self defense moves, or look for a. I don't know if they're giving classes nowadays. Um, But uh, just, I I would say, start with some videos to get some quick moves to equip yourself. And if you can, yeah, if you can carry an item like mace or a taser or a pocket knife, I don't, I'm not a gun gal, but I've thought about it. Uh, If that's your vibe, um, just to give yourself an opportunity to um, flee and. Live another day. Yeah. Uh, so now we are going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by any marginalized or other groups or uh, about marginalized or other groups or any true crime goodies so i wanted to shout out suspidia um and it is yeah it's a true crime podcast about true crimes in latin america uh and it's hosted by carol and stephanie and they uh were born and raised in brazil and do crimes all over uh, Latin America. It's a a good show. So check it out. It sounds good. Yeah, Yeah, it's cool. I like the name. Yeah,
1: me too. So my shout out is for Jensen and Holes. Mm. They probably don't need my shout out. (laughs) (laughs) I bet you guys are probably already listening, but on the off chance that you aren't and what are you even doing with your life? (laughs) Give them a listen. Uh, Paul Holes is a retired cold case investigator who helped crack the Golden State Killer case. And Billy Jensen is a well-known investigative journalist. They are both super smart, and with each episode, they attempt to solve an unsolved murder case with the help of the listeners. And uh, we were actually recently invited to be on their show for one of their distraction episodes where they talk to different podcasters, and we talked about the baseline killer case with them. And it's available right now if you sign up for Stitcher Premium.
2: Yeah, it was really fun it was awesome
1: yeah it was super fun
2: um, well, that's it for today, folks. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website
1: is FruitLoopsPod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting there's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website
2: that's right this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive y'all it's crazy out there